Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. It's good to see you all. Man, this is a great day. Guys, this is Palm Sunday. Come on. This is a big day. It's a big week ahead. Passion Week, right? That's right. Amen. Come on. Come on. All right. Hey, if you guys got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. Um, I really do hope you guys have had a great week. It was a great week in the Shell household. It was busy, but it was a great week. Um, the in-laws got to come in, so Shiloh got to see her pop, pop, and Gigi. Uh, so that's always a good time. Or pop, pop, and Grana. I'm sorry. Gigi's my, my mom. Sorry, Grana. Uh, and then the other big news is Tennessee just won another game, guys. I don't know if y'all knew this, but baseball, Tennessee's number one. They are rocking it. So I know that's, no, y'all probably don't care, but I just got to at least share that as a Tennessee fan. It's not often we get to celebrate in the state of Tennessee. So number one, Woo, here we go. So, but uh, this morning we're going to be continuing through the book of Luke. Uh, and as I was preparing for the week, um, one, I have to give a big shout out to a gentleman. He was here a few weeks ago. Uh, his name is Ronnie Coleman. How many of you guys got the privilege of listening to Ronnie Coleman a few weeks back? Man, if y'all did not get to come to the Bible conference, I highly encourage you to go back online and rewatch the, the nights each evening. They were incredible. But Ronnie Coleman, whoo, what a dynamic speaker, okay? Uh, and I just had to give him a big shout out because that night when he spoke, he busted the doors wide open for me to be able to come right out off the stage, people. All right? Yeah, I was nervous about coming off the stage. And when he did it, I was like, come on, amen, brother. So now, yeah, y'all have Ronnie Coleman to thank for how I act from now on. Cool? So, but I just had to give him a big shout out. He was a, man, he was awesome. So, but we are going to continue through Luke. And, and as I was preparing for the week, I was kind of torn because today is Palm Sunday. And it's a very crucial day uh, uh, in the life of Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem, uh, into his final week of life leading up to his crucifixion. And ultimately, what we're going to be celebrating this next Sunday, the resurrection. And I really wanted to do due diligence to this day. And, and as we prepare for the week of Passion Week, I want to do something. I want to do diligence to what Jesus did for us. Um, but as I read through Luke chapter four, the Lord just kind of just revealed to me. He's like, hey, man, you don't need to go any further. Luke four, uh, verses 14 through 30. These are your verses. This is what we need to look at. And so this morning, my, my goal is to walk us through this passage in Luke chapter 4 and to reveal to you six key points that foreshadow or, or that pave the way of Jesus's ministry as it goes into the Passion Week. Okay, now I know you guys probably, heard, all you heard was six points, and you were like, Josh, I can barely, you can barely get through three points. How are you going to get through six points? Well, that's why we're just going to jump right in, cool? Uh, so I'm going to read this passage to you. Um, and I'm not going to ask you to stand because this is a rather lengthier passage, but I'm going to read it to you and then we will pray and we'll jump right in. So um, just to give a little quick backstory as I, before I read to it, though, uh, last week we looked at John the Baptist in the wilderness, right? So Victor led us through uh, what it looks like for us to, to bloom where we are rooted, right? So John, he was sent on a mission to prepare the way for the Lord, right? And he was in the wilderness and proclaiming the word of God. And, and, a, and a baptism of repentance by water, right? Uh, and now what we see after John of the wilderness, he ultimately, we see uh, an encounter of him and Jesus, and he actually baptizes Jesus himself, and the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove on Jesus. 
And then so he is full of the Holy Spirit and power. And then from there, the Holy Spirit then drives Jesus to where? The wilderness himself for 40 days. And he goes and he fasts in the wilderness. And after this 40 day fast, who does he encounter? The enemy, Satan himself. And Satan tries to tempt him and to deceive him. But what we see is that Jesus being fully God is fully aware of Satan's schemes. And he gives us an example of what it means for us to one, lay hold of the truth. That we must be rooted in the word of God as Satan tries to deceive us and as he tries to attack us in this life. And so what we see in this account of Jesus in the desert, and the temptation is that Jesus overcomes Satan himself to where Satan then flees and he tries to seek another opportune time to attack Jesus, which we will see later on in his life. But which then now leads the way of Jesus coming out of the desert and he is now ready to go uh, right into the ministry. He's ready to start grinding, as some of these younger whippersnappers would say, right? Um, he's ready to start his uh, public ministry. And this is where we pick up on, uh, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. He says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set a liberty to those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Then he said to them, doubtless, you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in that time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now get this, verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. Oh, but get this, verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. He went away. Will you guys pray with me? Lord God, we just come before you right now asking that you just do one thing, that you will just send your spirit down upon us and that you will speak to us. Lord, that you will just speak through me and that your word will be living and active as it says in Hebrews and that it will be sharp enough to pierce our soul and our mind. 
that you'll just truly reveal yourself to us in a whole new light today. But Lord, we just ask that you'll just truly meet us here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, there's six key things I want to unpack for us today as we work through this passage that will ultimately uh, cast a foreshadowing of Jesus's ministry from this point to the beginning of his ministry, all the way up to this week in which we're fixing to walk through, the Passion Week. And, I, and I'm excited to, uh, to share this with you. The first thing I wanna see here though is, is the reception of Jesus. I want you to see how Jesus was received. So again, Jesus just got out of the wilderness of being tempted by Satan. And, and he now, and Luke picks up here in verse 14, and where he says, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went throughout the all surrounding country, right? Um, the first thing that I want us to see here in verse 14 is this, is that when Jesus comes back, the, that Luke makes it very important for us to understand that he not just comes back as himself, but he comes back in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is this is extremely important for us to understand because this is demonstrating to us the necessity of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. You see, we, we have a tendency of thinking as Jesus as being fully God because he was. He was fully God incarnate. But guess what? Without the installment of the Holy Spirit, he would not have been able to do anything that he did. Now, you're all probably like, whoa, Josh, hang on a second. How is that possible? I mean, like, what about the prophets of old? Didn't you just read about Elisha and Elijah and Elisha doing wonderful things, miracles? Yes, but without the Holy Spirit, the triune God, his perfect authority and power would not be on full display. And without the Holy Spirit entering into Jesus, his death would not have been as crucial as it was. The, the Holy Spirit was a final installment for Jesus. And so if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to lead him and guide him throughout his ministry, we too must understand that we need to rely on the Holy Spirit in our own lives. And when we look at the Trinity, oh, that's a dangerous word, the Trinity. We have a tendency of lifting up the Father and the Son, but we have a tendency of neglecting the Spirit as if like he doesn't have any power in our life. Hello, the reason why Jesus left is because he wanted to give us the helper. He wanted us to give us the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we would not have the power or the authority to do anything in this life, to share the gospel. And, and by the way, it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the power of the Holy Spirit in us and through us when it comes to the work of the gospel in people's lives. This, this message of good news of Jesus coming and dying for the lost and the sick and the brokenhearted and to bring them back to life spiritually. Without the Holy Spirit, that gospel message would not have any power. You see that in this life. Many people try to find ways to fill emptiness in their lives, thinking that it's going to bring life back to them. But guess what? It fades away. It only brings more death and more suffering and more misery. But yet the gospel message, because of the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, brings life. It brings restoration. What a beautiful thing, right? So Luke is trying to emphasize this when we talked about how uh, Jesus returned and the power of the Spirit. So it, it displays the overall authority and power of the Holy Spirit. 
Again, without the, without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit within Jesus, his teachings would have had no authority. But the second thing that Luke is trying to, uh, to reveal to us in these two verses here, the second half of verse 14 into 15, is that the gospel was proclaimed and reports about him were spreading. This is essential for Jesus coming back into his hometown of Galilee. Okay? Um, now, Luke here, he actually skips over. If you actually jump ahead to the other gospel of John, the first four chapters of John are designated to Jesus' first brief ministry in the region of Judea and Jerusalem. Right? And I don't want us to overlook the, the things that happened in his early ministry because they were crucial. I mean, we, we saw Jesus calling his first disciples, right? He called Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Nathaniel. And then he would also go on to have one of the most profound and most uh, famous interactions in the, in the gospels with Nicodemus, talking about how he is the life, right? And the infamous John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. And he began to have this conversation with Nicodemus about what it means to be reborn spiritually, not physically. And so there's key things that happen in the, the, the ministry uh, in Judea and Jerusalem that we don't need to look over, but Luke, what he's doing here is he's emphasizing the reason why he starts here is because he's emphasizing the authenticity of Jesus and the power which he also played in his disciples' lives, what he called them. And so I love how he picks up here. Um, I jumped way ahead of my notes. It's totally fine. Here we go. But all that to say, though, is that as a result of his ministry in Jerusalem and Judea, reports spread throughout the country. And, and the people in his own region, Galilee, in the city of Nazareth, have heard about it. And, and, and as he comes back into his region, they welcome him with open arms. They are excited for him to come. Now, you also got to remember, too, they, they grew up with this guy. So obviously there's this natural inclination of want them to receive him, of like, hey, this is Jesus, right? This is Joseph's son. He was like a wee little lad. You know, he was a kind guy. He was compassionate. He was merciful. He was, he was honoring to his father and mother. And as he grew up, we also see back in Luke chapter 2 of this idea that when he grew up, that he grew up in wisdom and stature, right? When, he, uh, when uh, Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple, um, they, they brought him before Simeon, and Simeon was in awe. And then ultimately, when they went back to the temple, and Jesus decided to linger behind and teach with the teachers while his parents left, they went back and they were amazed by his teaching and by his wisdom and how he was growing. Right, so the people of Nazareth were not unfamiliar with this guy, Jesus. They knew who he was. But the reality is, is what we're gonna see here is that they were not ready for the power and the authority of which he was coming back in by the Holy Spirit. So we pick up in verse 16, it says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So this is the second point that I want us to see here. So we see the reception of Jesus, and, and I wanted just to look at those two verses, 14 and 15, because they prepare the way of how Jesus enters into different regions moving forward in his ministry. We see a foreshadowing of how he's received. But the second thing I want us to see is the proclamation of Jesus, of how, how he is being revealed to the audience in which he is interacting with. 
And so he, he comes into Jerusalem, he's received by his hometown people, and he does, get this, he does what he customarily does on every Sabbath. And what was that? Goes to the synagogue. This is a side note, by the way. If Jesus made it a custom to go to the Sabbath or go to the synagogue on every Sabbath, who are we to think we don't need to be in the church? This world, this, this, our society today is telling us that it's okay that you don't go to church as long as you read your Bible at home or as long as you listen to podcasts or as long as you listen to this or as long as you do this. Let me tell you something. There's nothing more better and more nourishing to you as a believer in Jesus than being here in this church. In community, not the building. Forget the building. I'm talking about fellowship. We are the body of Christ. We were made for one another in Jesus. So if Jesus made it a custom to be at the synagogue every Sunday, by George, we should make it a custom to be here every Sunday as the body of Christ in the image of our creator. So, sorry, that was a side note. Um, but I, I want to read this quote, and I'm probably going to uh, obliterate his name, but he's, a, he's a, another theologian. His name is Tabidi Anibawali. Anybody? Anybody know that name? Okay. Um, but anyway, he says this. How are we going to live like Jesus if we customarily are avoiding the things that Jesus customarily attended? You want to reread that? Let me reread that for you. How are we going to be like Jesus if we're customarily avoiding the things that Jesus customarily attended? And he goes on to say this, the synagogue of Jesus' day was in worse shape than the churches of our day and our Lord still attended. Have you ever thought about that? You got people out there like, man, the church is full of hypocrites. I don't want to attend that. That ain't healthy. The church is full of liars. The church is this. The church is that. Yada, yada, yada. But let me tell you something. The church today ain't nothing like what it used to be back then in the synagogue. And we're, we're going to see a glimpse of that as we look at the Passion Week uh, later in the sermon here. But, but as he entered the synagogue, we see that he not only... Uh, went into the synagogue, but he was handed the scroll of uh, the prophet Isaiah. Now there was this customary, the, 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 the services in the synagogue were very similar to how we do service here in the church, right? There was a, there was a, uh, 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 I'm trying to think, there was a list of things that they had to do, right? There was different roles and different aspects in which different people got to speak. So Jesus, he stepped in that day as the one who read the scroll and ultimately would teach. And he was handed the, the, the scroll of Isaiah. How ironic is that? Right? And, and we see here that when Jesus was handed the, roll, uh, the scroll of Isaiah, he unrolled the scroll and just so happened to find the place in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where it read this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the liberty to the captives and recovering to the side of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So you can only imagine what Jesus was thinking as he was reading this scroll to his audience, right? So his hometown people, people that he knew, his friends growing up, they're like, man, this is, they don't understand what these words are say, or what these words mean right now, but I'm about ready to reveal it to them. I bet, I don't know, I'm not trying to put myself in Jesus' shoes, but 
If I'm getting excited about it, I can only imagine what Jesus was thinking as he was reading it. Um, he was probably either really excited or he was probably like, man, I'm about to lay into these fools, right? Um, but so you can only imagine what he was saying or what he was thinking. And then, but ultimately we have to ask, why, did, why, why this passage? Well, because this passage is, explains exactly what Jesus came to do. Again, this is the beginning of his ministry. This is the, 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 the beginning piece of what he's fixing to start doing for the rest of his ministry, the next two and a half, three years of his ministry. And he came to do these three things, to proclaim the good news of the, to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to recovery of the sight to the blind, to liberty to those who are oppressed, and to ultimately proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he came for the sole purpose of proclaiming the good news and to fulfill it. This is huge. And so you can only imagine what the audience is thinking at this time, okay? Now, let me just tell you this. You guys know me pretty well, right? What if I just came out here and I told you, and I read Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and I said, I came to proclaim the year of the Lord, right? You guys look at me like I'm crazy. And then Jesus actually went on to talk about, or he would go on next in these verses to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's powerful, but it's also eye-opening to his audience. I bet they weren't expecting that. They were probably expecting him to come in and just read the scripture, sit down and talk about what Isaiah was meaning there and how there is a coming Messiah. But they were not expecting him to say, no, I am the Messiah, right? He says, no, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one that Isaiah spoke about over 700 years ago. I am here. And I am here to proclaim to you the good news of the, of the gospel, of how I came to, to die for you, to take away your sins. So initially the Jews are probably like, yes, amen, we've been waiting for you for so long. But then Jesus, he turns it on. He turns it on. And he says, no, 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 you don't get it. I'm not just here for you, I'm here for everybody. I'm not here for just Israel. I'm not here for just the Jews. But I also came to, to liberate the captives and the, the Gentiles. Which, by the way, great news for us, right? Because we can have hope in that. So, um, so this is something that the, 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 the Jews were not, and the, the Jews and the audience were not anticipating. But I also want to point this out too, and the fact of how convenient it was for him to stop where he did in verse 19 there. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Because if you actually go back and read Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2, the second half of verse 19 there in Luke actually goes on to say this. So he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And so those in the audience, they were waiting for Jesus to say this. They were waiting for him to continue that verse and say that I'm also here to, to proclaim vengeance on, on, for God. But he didn't say that. And so they were like, Jesus, what, we, how come you're not doing this? How come you're not saying that you're also here to, to bring vengeance? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That time has not yet come. He says, I didn't come to bring vengeance. I came to 
to seek and to save the lost, right? So again, go back to John 3, 16. For, for God sent his only begotten son, that whoever shall believe in him shall not, power, or shall not perish, but have everlasting life, right? And when he goes on into verse 17, and what does verse 17 say? That he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but he came into the world to save the world. So again, as a Jewish member of the audience, I bet they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not, this is not uh, biblical. This is not fulfilling what Isaiah said. You're, you're proclaiming a false truth. And so you can, you can see that the wheels are starting to turn their mind a little bit. Which leads me to the third thing here is that we see the cynicism toward Jesus from the audience, Right? Verses 21 and 22 here, it says, uh, so he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and all, who, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, right? So it seems there over the first half of 22 that they're really receiving it. They're like, wow, this is awesome. He's coming, he's proclaiming and he's, he's speaking these really powerful words. But as it starts sinking in to their mind and to their heart, what do we see here at the end of it? Is this not Joseph's son? Wait, 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 Jesus. So you're saying that you're the Messiah, but yet you're, you're Joseph's son. We knew you as a little boy and you didn't do any of this as a little boy. Like, how is this possible? And so we start to see this, this skepticism in the people in the audience and they're starting to question and Jesus catches on to this, right? And we see it there in, in verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless, He's like, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling the vibes. I'm feeling what you're saying or what you're, what you're feeling here. And he says, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So he's, he's feeling out the room and he's understanding like, wow, they're not believing me right now. And they're actually gonna want me to do miracles for them to prove that I'm actually the Messiah. My words are not powerful enough let alone my testimony, right? They've heard, again, they heard about all that Jesus did in the regions of Judea and Jerusalem. But yet now they're questioning in their own mind about his authenticity before them. He says, are you serious? You're questioning me right now after all that I've done? And then this is what I love about Jesus. And, he, and this is something that he continually does in his ministry as well, is that he then comes back at them and he answers the, the root issue of the heart right? Which uh, goes to the fourth point here, the dramatic revelation by Jesus. And he goes on and uh, he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, right? And he goes on to tell this account of Elijah back in 1 Kings 17, where God called him to go to this widow who was uh, during this great famine and this widow lived in an area called Sidon, right? Which is not typically where the Jews lived, okay? So this woman was a Gentile. And Jesus then reveals them. He says, hey, listen, during this time, God didn't call Elijah to go to the Jews. He called him to go to the Gentiles. He's like, you're wanting me to do these miracles for your own pleasure and for your own purpose. But let me tell you something. I didn't come just for you. I came for everybody. He says, you need to die to yourself. You need to understand that I am not here just for you. Now, why is this important for us today? 
Church, hear me say this. It's not about you. The American church people, guess what? It's full of broken people. You wanna know God, why God's hand has been over the United States for so long? It's because we actually worshiped him. Not as a nation, but as individuals, the body, the body of Christ in America worshiped him. Now we're turning away from him. So you wanna know why the God, you feel like God's hand is coming off of America? Well, it's because we're turning away from him. Again, this is not me saying that we, as, as the institution of the church, need to come back to God. I'm saying we, as individuals who spiritually are dead, need to come back to him because he is the spiritual life in us. God does not desire the institution of First Baptist Church to proclaim the good news. He desires each and every one of you as individuals to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So again, Jesus is telling the audience here, he says, hey, I don't, he's like, I'm not here for the, the overall health and wealth of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. I didn't come for, for you as a, as a whole. He says, I came for you as individuals. And I didn't come for just for you, I came for the Gentiles as well. And this is blowing their minds as he's saying this thing. And then he goes on and tells another story about how God also called another prophet, Elisha, to go to a man in the Syrian army. He's a commander in the Syrian army Naaman, who was a leper, a leper. You, okay, you guys don't know anything. Back then, they were like, no one touched them. No one went around them. They were ostracized. And so when God, uh, in the story, there's this uh, army commander, Naaman, who is a leper, and he had a servant in his house who told him about how there was this prophet in the land of, of Samaria, uh, of Israel who could heal him. And so she tells him about him and he goes to the king, the Syrian king. He says, hey, there's this prophet over here who can heal me. And so um, can you approve of me to go to him so I can be healed? And the Syrian king is like, of course. And so he writes a letter of recommendation essentially and sends him on his way. And when he gets there, the king of Israel receives his letter. He's like, wait, he's a leper? No way. He like tears his clothes. He's really dramatic about it and he sends him off. But Elisha, the prophet, hears about it. He says, no, 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 no. Let him come to me. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with him. I'll talk to him. And the story goes is that he interacts with Naaman, this, this Syrian, this Gentile. He says, hey, do me a favor. Go down to the Jordan. I want you to wash seven times. And then you'll be cleansed. Now there's this interaction there with Naaman. He's like, are you kidding me? There's like these two rivers back where I'm from that are way better than the Jordan. He's wanting me to go wash in the Jordan, this nasty river. Man, no, but the, the, the girl in his household says, no, no, if the prophet told you to do it, then you need to do it. So he does, he goes and he washes seven times and guess what? He's cleansed, he's cleansed, right? So again, Jesus, why did he tell these two stories? It's because he was trying to reveal to the Jews that it's not about you and I came to save the sick and the lost of everybody, Jews and Gentiles alike. And they were not having it. They were not having it at all. And it goes on. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with what? Hello? Wrath. Not just like, uh, they, it doesn't say that they were just upset. Like, oh my gosh, how could he do this? No, they were filled with wrath. That word is weighty. It's full of anger, tension, 
I mean, like, they were extremely upset, burning with fire, like, enraged about what Jesus said. Which leads me to the, the next thing, is the point five is the murderous rejection of Jesus. The murderous rejection of Jesus. So again, when they all heard these things, all, went to, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Okay, I don't know if you guys caught this or not. These are his homeboys. These are his friends. These are the people that he grew up with. And on this dramatic revelation of why he came and why he came to proclaim liberty to the captives and bring sight to the blind and to bring the year of the Lord's favor, they hear about this and they get so upset to where they look past the fact that they knew Jesus intimately as a boy and how he, his character preceded him, right? But now they're so mad at him that they're really, they're literally taking him and they're dragging him out of the synagogue to the edge of their city in this region of Galilee to throw him over the cliff. Talk about escalating quickly. As we read this, does this not sound familiar? You see, the gospel message is offensive. It's an offensive message, it really is. Because it makes us realize that, again, it's not about us. And it has everything to do with God the Father sending his son Jesus to die not only for you, but for everyone who confesses and believes in Jesus as Lord of their life. And we don't like that because as our sinful nature, we want it to be about us. We want to be seated at the right hand of the Father like James and John when they requested to sit by his side. We want the attention, we want it to be about us. We want the best in this life. Hello, I mean, that's what the world is teaching us right now. But Jesus is telling us the exact opposite. He says, no, it's not about you. It never will be about you. It's always about me. And what I tell you to do is to die to yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. But yeah, It's so easy to say amen to that. But how many of us actually do it? I stand before you guilty as guilty as anybody else when it comes to that. There are so many conveniences in this life that I don't want to surrender. I love my house. I love the things in my house. I love my Jeep. I love the conveniences of Columbus. Even though we don't have a whole lot, I still love them. I don't want to surrender those things. If the Lord is calling me to go over to uh, China or, or sit down to the Central America or somewhere like that, it would be really hard for me to leave. Because, hello, I'm selfish. I want the things that I want. But Jesus says, no. When you follow me, you are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, people, y'all ready for this? Last time I almost, I couldn't remember it, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. You die to yourself and you put on Christ and you live for him. 
selflessly, with great humility. And the Jewish audience at this time in Nazareth did not want to hear this message. And this would become a consistent theme throughout Jesus' ministry where he would go into a city, he would be received really well. They would hear about all that he's doing and they would say, Jesus, please come. Please come and heal our sick. Bring sight to our blind. Do all these great miracles for us. And so he would come. He would come and do these miracles and then while he was there, he would teach. And guess what? While he was teaching, he would step on toes. He would pierce the heart. And eventually it would cause people to riot or cause people to turn him away or to reject him. This was consistent all the way up to now with Passion Week, where Jesus would enter into Jerusalem triumphantly. But get how he, you guys remember how he answers in? Does he come in on like a really big golden chariot? No, with a sword hanging out, or you know, with a sword in his hand, he's like, oh yeah, you know, like Tim Allen from Home Improvement. Uh, no, he comes in riding on a colt. An unbroke donkey, humble. And as he's coming in, people are receiving him well, laying the palm leaves down, laying their tunics down, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He's received triumphantly. And then when he goes in, what is one of the first accounts that we read about? He goes to the synagogue. Goes to the synagogue. And he turns tables over because of how they turn the synagogue into a den of robbers. How many churches are a den of robbers nowadays? How many of us are selling stuff in the church? Especially the Baptist church, man. If y'all did that, woo! Game over. Don't even think about that. But he goes into the temple and he starts teaching and he starts doing miracles in Jerusalem. All the while, there's this group of Pharisees, these religious leaders who've been following him from the beginning of his ministry, who are now thinking of the opportune time to, to capture him and to put him in a position to, to be judged for his teachings. So again, when you go back to uh, Jesus in the desert and Satan looking for an opportune time, here's his opportune time. He has a group of men, these religious leaders, who are vulnerable to Satan's deception, and he is using them to capture Jesus, and then ultimately to uh, falsely accuse him, bring him before Pilate, where he is condemned to be crucified. So the same people who were praising Hosanna in the beginning are now saying crucify. Y'all see the parallels here of Nazareth and Jerusalem? But get this, as, as he's being carried out of Nazareth, going back to Luke chapter 4, he gets brought to the brow of this cliff where they were wanting to throw him down. And if he doesn't die, they were probably going to stone him to make sure he was dead to finish the job. Verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. He went away. Talk about a miracle. You have this big, angry mob who's trying to throw you down the cliff. It's like you guys coming after me to throw me into the river, right? But yet somehow I miraculously get away. There's a lot of you. There's only one of me. I think I'm a pretty strong guy, but I can't take you all. There's a lot of stronger men in here than me. So, but the reality is that Jesus 
was able to elude them. He was able to get away. This is the only difference in the account of Jesus in Nazareth and, and ultimately him in Jerusalem. You see, Jesus, when he was in Nazareth, he was saying all these things and doing all these things and ultimately for the rest of his ministry because he knew that he was here for one purpose, to proclaim and then to die. To proclaim and then to die. Jesus had his eyes on the cross the entire time from the very beginning. From the very, very beginning. Which leads me to the last point that I wanted to make. It's the, un the unavoidable destiny of Jesus. We see in Mark 10, 45, where it says, for, the son of, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we think about how this was planned from the very beginning, again, when you go back to Isaiah, over 700 years before Jesus even is on the scene, we see in Isaiah 52, verse 13, where it says, Behold, this is the, the prophet Isaiah revealing who the servant is, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Guys, this isn't talking about praise. This is talking about him being hung on the cross for you and I. And then the entire next chapter, Isaiah 53, paints this picture of the crucifixion of Jesus so vividly that you, when you read it, it makes you cringe. And then you realize that it actually came to fruition when Jesus went into Jerusalem and was crucified. Everything that you read in Isaiah 53 was fulfilled when Jesus was hung on the cross. So again, Jesus, his unavoidable destiny was the cross the entire time. This was planned from the very beginning. And praise God for that, because without Jesus going to the cross, you and I would be, we would continually be walking in our trespasses and our sins. We would be hopeless. If it wasn't for Jesus dying on the cross, I would not be standing here before you declaring the same message of which he was declaring to them. This liberating message that brings hope in life. People have a tendency, by the way, of taking uh, that passage out of Isaiah 61 and turning it into a political verse. Jesus wasn't a politician. He wasn't worried about politics. He was only worried about saving people's lives. It was a salvific message in which he was proclaiming in Isaiah 61 that was ultimately fulfilled in the life and death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This message of salvation. You see, everything that we read about, and this is, I just want you guys to, this is something I'm learning and I pray that you guys will continue to learn as we all are learning together in this life because hello, none of us will arrive until the, which, the, the day in which Christ returns and he reveals everything to us. But the thing is, is that Jesus is, a, when you read through the, the gospels and the accounts of Jesus, everything, everything is hinged upon Jesus looking to the cross. He poured into 12 men during that time that would ultimately carry out and continue his ministry. But Jesus, the whole time, had the cross on his mind to fulfill the call and the command which God the Father placed on the Son through the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way he was able to do that. 
guys, I get it. I know I'm almost, I'm over on time. Surprise. But hey, I got through six points. So, but if there's anyone here in the room today that does not understand the significance of having this relationship with Jesus, who does not understand the significance of Jesus coming into this world, living a perfect life, going and dying the perfect death, ultimately to rise again. If you don't understand what that's all about, please come talk to us. Because what that is about is about you having eternal life with Christ forever, eternity. The only way you can achieve that and receive that is through Christ and Christ alone. By grace, through faith in Christ. So if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with Jesus and you want to get that started today so that you can have the assurance of hope in this life, come talk to us. Come talk to Victor, myself. Anybody who is a believer in Jesus, Victor and I are not the only ones who have the key to salvation. Anyone who's in Christ knows the good news. So, but if there's anybody who just has anything weighing on them, then you need to come up here to the altar. You need to lay it down and surrender it. You need to come do that. Especially as we walk through this week of passion, we can remember what Christ came and do, to do and did for us. Guys, he took the weight of the entire world, past, present, and future on him that day when he was on the cross. Can you imagine the magnitude and the weight of that? And he did it because he loves you. So I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna go to this time of invitation. Please do not hesitate to come if you have any questions or if you wanna make that right today. Have a relationship with Jesus. This is a ministry of First Baptist Church located at 1700 Milam Street, Columbus, Texas.